Alex Marlowe, Editor-in-Chief of Breitbart News, and this is the Breitbart News Daily Podcast. And we have an upside-down podcast for you today. We open the show with our guest, Nigel Farage, Mr. Brexit himself and an old friend of mine who pretty much has carte blanche to call into the live show every morning at 6 a.m. Eastern on Sirius XM 125, The Patriot, whenever he wants. And that's exactly what he did. He called in right at the top of the show. So we speak to him about all manner of things, from Piers Morgan to Trump to the French election to climate alarmism to globalism seemingly on the wane in certain parts of the world. All that comes up in the interview. Then after that, we get into the news where I focus on this Trump-appointed judge who's delayed Joe Biden's effort to further open our borders by removing Title 42 and a breakdown of the epic epic, epic news that Elon Musk is buying Twitter. And of course, we have our caller of the day, but let's get rolling. Here's Nigel. Nigel, my friend, how have you been? I'm very well indeed, thank you. Um, Yes, you know, Brexit Britain is finding its place in the world. We actually have a bit more of a voice than we did when we were swallowed up in that globalist monster in Brussels. So yeah, from that perspective, things are good. Um, Looking forward to the Midterms. Well, I think the Republicans are going to make some stupendous gains. At least I hope so. And, you know, watching and thinking about what happened in France on Sunday, um, where, you know, Macron may have won, but if you look at the growth of of the Le Pen vote, I think that dam's going to burst in five years. I really do. So this is what's interesting. Let's start there, because if you look at the trends, even though Macron won by a pretty wide margin, the younger people voted for the much older Mary, uh, Marianne Le Pen than did, um, uh, the, I'm sorry, Marine Le Pen than did Emmanuel Macron. And uh, what do you attribute that divide to? Because it seems like this would be very alarming for the establishment in France. What the French have done over the years is, is to build a pension system that is completely unaffordable. <laughs> I mean, the French retire at 62 on great big pensions. Um, and so basically, you know, even though even though uh, Macron wants to put the age up a little bit, but basically, if you're comfortable in life, you generally don't want change. You think, you know what, I'm all right, sure. Jack, the hell with everybody else. So there's a large element of that um, in, in the Macron vote. For the youth of France, uh, for the youth of France, unless they have been, uh, you know, come from gilded backgrounds and gone to the right colleges, uh, you know, life is pretty tough. And so that's why you've seen the growth of the youth vote, not just for Marine Le Pen, but also for Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who is the leader right. of a pretty hard left political party. So centrist politics, the usual middle of the road social um, Democrat stuff, uh, the French youth are just turning their backs on completely because it's not working for them. Yeah, it doesn't appear to be. And one other thing that's noteworthy is that the working class seem to vote for Le Pen a lot more than uh, than Macron. And again, the trend is in the direction of turning away from the establishment among the working class. People very similar to what we saw with you in, uh, in the, with the Brexit Party and UKIP and what we've seen in the United States with Donald Trump and sort of the more populist uh, the wing of the Republican Party. Yes, I mean, it's almost the big cities versus the rest, isn't it? You know, London, for example, which is obviously very, very big in terms of our population, but London um, has a very different view 
on social and economic issues to towns and cities that are just 50 miles away. Um, and it's much the same in France. You know, Paris, uh, those other big cities, people that work for global corporates, uh, youngsters that have been through university and studied, and studied social sciences. Um, and I'm ever more convinced that our universities throughout the Western world are now becoming sort of effectively madrasas of Marxism. So it is these urban populations, it's the urban populations that support the status quo um, and increasingly, uh, you know, lots of other disparate groups, but a lot of working class and particularly young working class who really want change, who really want something different. And, you know, people say to me, well, Le Pen's failed again. She's never going to win. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you the little story, Alex. In 1999, in the European elections, UKIP came forth, right? In 2004, in the European elections, UKIP came third. In 2009, in the European elections, UKIP came second. And in 2014, UKIP won the European elections, secured a referendum for the British people, and we got Brexit. So I know what a long, hard political journey is when you're leading political parties that are against the establishment and you've got mainstream media against you, and these days, of course, social media too against you. It's a long, hard road, but I think the fact that over four out of ten people have now voted Marine Le Pen in a presidential election, despite all the horrible things that are being said about her, no, it says to me this dam's going to break. It really does. It's really shocking to look at the breakdown in the numbers in that uh, Macron won about 70% of the vote for people over 60 years old. So this is exactly that group you were talking about earlier, who people who are just either on a huge pension and don't want things to change that much. But the people who are looking towards the future, it's almost a 50-50 split at this point. And and that is something that is uh, pretty encouraging. I, I want to go around anywhere in Europe, Nigel. What's encouraging to you? What, give me some positive news, some places that you're looking at, you're thinking this is a good sign. Well, I think there are two sides to this, really. One side of the coin is that, you know, increasingly uh, Brussels, the European Union, the globalists, uh, they're becoming ever more authoritarian, um, ever more controlling. Uh, they're commanding uh, just not the... In there isn't the enthusiasm for them. There isn't the energy for them. They're there and they do what they do because they hold the keys to power, because right. they are the status quo. I mean, look at Macron's acceptance speech. Look at Macron's so-called victory rally. There wasn't much cheering. There wasn't no. much whooping. There wasn't weird. much hollering. You know, they know, they know um, that they've won this, but that their situation is precarious. And so, you know, I see that. I see that right across Europe. I mean, obviously, you know, electoral cycles vary country to country. Um, but I do genuinely think that the globalist project hasn't delivered for people. And if, as I suspect, there is quite an unpleasant downturn coming, um, then I think this project really will be exposed. And there is this idea, and we see it. I mean, the Ukraine war in many ways teaches us one thing, and that is there is such a thing as the national interest. You know, there is such a thing as wanting to be self-sufficient in energy, for argument's sake. Um, and, and again, this brings us back to America, doesn't it? It brings us back to the, to the, you know, the Trump view of energy security and the Biden view of energy security. The world feels like an increasingly dangerous place. And that means people will naturally in those circumstances take national positions 
rather than the globalist position of supporting these bizarre structures run by people that you can't vote for and you can't remove. You know, one other thing that's noteworthy on uh, is stateside here, Nigel, is how the climate change movement is falling out of favor to a degree. It's still very popular in left of center groups. And overall, I think most of the country is somewhat concerned about it, but it's really descending the list of people's priorities. And this was sort of the uh, key that turned the lock for the globalists, is that we need to uh, spend a lot of money on something theoretical that we probably have very little or no control over uh, that will be a project of 10, 20, 50, 100 years. And that seems to be going away. This could be a real uh, sea change if this trend continues. Yeah, I mean, this stuff needs, needs, needs deep, deep thought because it depends how you ask the question, Alex. I mean, if yes. you ask people... If you ask people, you know, do you want a cleaner, greener, better environment for your grandchildren, who the hell's going to say no? Who the hell's going to say no? Of course, right. of course we want that. But if you then ask the same person, uh, you know, are you happy uh, that as China builds 80 new coal-fired power stations in 2021, uh, that we're going to slap a whole load of taxes on you at right. a time <laughs> when energy bills are rising anyway? And, th- and then you get a no. So I think, you know... The idea, the idea that we do want to, to, you know, basically act as good husbandry for the future, that is accepted by everybody. Um, but these vast, uh, expensive green energy projects that are producing unreliable energy, and, and you know, wind energy is unreliable energy. When the wind doesn't blow, these things don't produce anything. And I think, and so to me, I think the real debate is around what's being done in the name of combating climate change and the enormous acts of self-harm that's putting on many Western countries. I mean, take the UK as an example. Yes. I mean, Boris Johnson will say, Boris Johnson will say, we've reduced CO2 emissions by 44% since 1990. We're leading the world. Hooray. Another round of drinks for everybody, right? But we've done it because we now import 50% of our gas, gas that could be created here. And we've exported jobs in steel manufacturing, in shipmaking. They've all gone to India, to China, to elsewhere. Those goods then get manufactured in the Far East under lower environmental standards than we would apply. And then the products get shipped back to us. So the net CO2 output is in fact higher, but we've deluded ourselves that somehow we're saving the world. So I think this is where the debate needs to go. I think the debate needs to be a very pragmatic, sensible, hard-nosed approach to this. Um, and as I say, importing yes. energy and exporting manufacturing jobs isn't going to save anybody. I have two quick follow-ups on that. First of all, you guys are kind of debating this now because Boris has an energy tax planned, and I know that this is somewhat controversial. And that's exactly what you talked about, which is it's not let's not hold the people who are the real polluters accountable. Let's hold the British citizens accountable. Uh, and again, it's very hypothetical how you would achieve whatever ends he has in mind uh, with this tax. And it's not particularly conservative. Uh, it's the give me a reaction to this, Nigel. No, it's very unconservative. I mean, it's very, very big government. Um, but Boris is a, you know, appears to be a complete convert. Uh, to the Green cause, um, despite the fact that very, very few people who voted for him thought this was the ticket. Right. Um, but, but hey, you know what? If you're rich, it's great. And if yeah. you live in the, 
if you live in the smart districts of London, the fact that your electricity bill and gas bill has gone through the roof, it makes no difference to you. It makes no difference to you. It's everybody else out there working hard, seeing their bill doubling this year. They're the ones that are paying the price for it. And, you know, this is what you get, you know, when you have a political class who are, uh, by their upbringing, by their education, by their work patterns, disconnected from reality, disconnected from ordinary folk. This is when you get very bad thinking. Nigel, you also are seeing in Europe, I think some people are getting more aware that it's probably not a good idea to be overly dependent on Russia for their energy, but are they too coupled in with Russia? Is this causing a lot of strain uh, on the continent? Because it, lo and behold, something Russia starts invading a country and looks, looks very awkward if you're dependent on them for all of your energy. I, I, there's, there's a delicious speech and clip of Donald Trump addressing the United Nations in 2018 where he actually calls out Germany, and he says yes, he Germany does. has made itself too reliant on Russia for its energy. That's a big mistake. And the camera goes to the German delegation, and they're literally sniggering with laughter at what Trump has said. Uh, and now we realize that um, Angela Merkel, Muti Merkel, the mother of the German nation, <laughs> um, has made the most horrendous mistakes. And as this conflict... And as this battle between Russia, Ukraine, and Russia and the West gets worse, um, and as we talk about economic sanctions, uh, we should all remember one thing. But if sanctions really get ugly, Putin still holds bigger, stronger cards than we do. If he turns off the gas, Germany closes down overnight. Again, it's why I said to you a few moments ago that it's in a crisis like this that people start to think more in a national way of how right. to do things. So rather than, rather than being reliant on just-in-time just supply chains and cheap foreign labor and cheap foreign everything, uh, there are times when you think, you know what, actually, to look after my family, to look after my country, you know, we've got to make sure if things go wrong, we can feed ourselves, we've got enough water and enough gas to put in the car. And Nigel Farage has a show called Farage, which is on GB News Monday through Thursday at 7 p.m. Uh, London time. And then you can look that up in uh, online, get a lot of clips, etc. cetera. Uh, Nigel, the last time you're on, we discussed the boat migrants coming to your southern, uh, the, the southern point of the country. And you were out there on a boat exposing this. Uh, has there been any progress made in this regard? Was the coronavirus at all at least a way to slow this down? Um, and not not just illegal migration, but how is a uh, what is your migration rate in general in terms of white collar imported migration as well? Are you satisfied with that? Uh, despite the Brexit pledges, it looks like when we get the final official figures for 2021, it will be the record ever year for net migration. Uh, wow. The signs are in 2022 legal net migration will be higher still. Uh, Boris Johnson is not holding faith with the Brexit voting public on that. On illegal migration, well, so far, the numbers that have crossed the English Channel by boat, and bear in mind, we've been through the month of the year when the sea's at its coldest, so it's the least attractive. So far this year, it's running at four times the number of last year. So it's out of control. There is a government proposal that's been put on the table to deport young men who've no reason to be here to Rwanda. Um, and that proposal's on the table. Um, many conservative voters and other voters too have cheered the proposal. But will it actually happen? Um, and the jury is firmly out on that. If we did deport people to Rwanda, well, 
why would you pay a criminal trafficker, you know, um, six, seven thousand dollars to cross the channel if you were going to go to Rwanda? If they do it, it would act as a serious deterrent. But I'm not sure they've actually got the courage of their conviction. So, yeah, we still have a border crisis. We still have a problem, although it has to be said, compared to the southern border in the USA, ours is relatively small. Yeah, that is probably a fair point, unfortunately. Uh, give me your overall, give me a letter grade or a overall evaluation for Boris Johnson, because you were very encouraging when uh, he took power in the, the start of his administration. But privately, I don't think you'd mind me saying, uh, you said to me you were a little skeptical he was going to be able to do a great job, but publicly you were still, you were really uh, open-minded and optimistic about him. Uh, how is he doing in your eyes so far? Well, I try to be helpful towards him at that time, Alex, because... You know, I, I mean, I did not want uh, a sort of hard Marxist anti-Semite in the shape of Jeremy Corbyn coming to power. Sure. I think that would have been—I think that would have been ho- horrific. Um, you know, Boris Johnson is a very good cheerleader. He's very, very good at getting up and waving his arms about and making us all smile and laugh and feel optimistic. That's great, but being a leader is a slightly different thing, um, and I think he struggles to make decisions, and I think he gets very, very influenced by those around him. And, and he is surrounded, uh, you know, by that Oxford University, upper middle class set. Um, and that's why I think he's gone really very much more liberal, very much more green than people voted for. Um, and I, I have to say, you know, his, his, his premiership is in real trouble. It's in real trouble. Uh, people don't see him being truthful. I mean, the two opinion polls the week before last, three quarters of the British voting public think Boris Johnson is a liar. Now, they wow. may think lots of politicians are liars, but it's still a pretty serious state of affairs. Uh, Nigel, the, I reached out to you, so it was a pleasure to have you on, but I did reach out because I uh, really appreciated your analysis and commentary on President Trump's interview with Piers Morgan. Uh, you go back with Piers Morgan uh, a fair bit, and then you've taken some shots at Piers, I think reasonably so, and he's reacted to you. I, I want to get your whole take on this, what we need to know, but let's start from the beginning. Uh, evaluate Trump's decision to go on Piers and how that interview went down. Uh, give me your thoughts. Well, I don't think it was a good decision to go on it, but I mean, I know why he did, because, you know, Rupert Murdoch owns this new channel, and Rupert Murdoch's powerful with Fox News and all the rest of it, so Trump probably felt he had to do it. Um, also, when he accepted it, he thought Piers Morgan was a friend of his. Now, he did unfollow him on Twitter some time back, but he wouldn't have seen the stuff that Piers had said and written about him over the last 18 months. And I was in Mar-a-Lago two and a half weeks ago, um, and Trump asked me about Piers, and I said, look, do you know the truth? And he didn't, so I showed him the truth. And Piers now thinks that's some sort of terrible betrayal. Would it? I don't think telling the truth is ever a betrayal of anything. So, you know, he's flown off the handle, he said what he said, and now Morgan claims that Trump stormed off the show, which he de- emphatically did not do. So I'm not gonna reciprocate making any personal comments about Morgan. It's not my style. He can be as rude about me as he wants. Uh, but I do think uh, confecting a story 
that President Trump stormed off when he didn't is just plain wrong, Alex. I have the exact same take, which is that I don't know why Trump did it. He was misled if he thought Morgan was his friend. The stuff Morgan said about him in the past is horrific, and I don't know why uh, his handlers didn't make him aware of it. And if they did, uh, it was a kind of a misguided decision to go on. But then once he did, you're 100% correct. He was still completely taken out of context, and Morgan deserves to be called out for it. Uh, and it's interesting to see that Morgan's forging this new relationship or a rekindle relationship with Rupert Murdoch. It seems like he's going to be everywhere and columns and TV shows, uh, et cetera. And I just want people to know, because you're well aware of this about Morgan's history. What has he said about you in the last few days? Because he's been really angry at you for pointing out pretty obvious stuff. Yeah, oh, I'm, a, no, I'm, a, I'm a weasel. I'm contemptuous. Um, you know, how dare how dare I? How dare I tell President yeah. Trump the truth? Well, right. actually, I'm quite happy with that. Look, he, as I say, he can be Alex as abusive about me as he wants. I'm not going to return the compliment. It's not my style. We did have an exchange on Twitter. I finished it with over and out. I've got a life to lead, things to do, things I <laughs> believe in, things I stand for. And the question with Morgan is, does he actually believe in anything other than himself? Wonderful. Nigel Farage, thank you so much. And Farage is on GB News, 7 p.m. Uh, good stuff from Nigel. As always, we'll take a break, and then we'll get into the headlines. We come back. The monologue slash headline portion of the show occurred actually in today's second segment for the live show. So it is the second segment on today's podcast as well. Let's roll it. All right, I will start with the biggest news of the day. And you guys all know what's coming. This is the single biggest story happening, and there is no bigger one without a doubt. And that's a Trump appointed judge blocking Biden from ending Title 42. Yes, even bigger than Elon Musk buying Twitter, which I will, of course, give commentary on in a second. But a Trump appointed judge, another major win, said he will block Biden from ending Title 42 at the border. Federal judge in Louisiana is uh, came in and swooped in and said that this is not allowed. Judge Robert R. Summer Hayes granted a temporary restraining order that is going to prevent Biden from ending the Title 42 restrictions on illegal aliens coming into the country that were put in place due to the coronavirus. Uh, and this has been uh, jumped on by Arizona Attorney General Mark Burnovich, Louisiana Attorney General Jeffrey Landry, Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt. They all file a lawsuit that ending Title 42 will place an undue burden on the states and that the administration violated the Administrative Procedure Act, the APA, in doing so. And uh, now here we are in a good spot, a better spot than we were. And this is something that was uh, applauded by uh, people who don't want illegal immigration uh, to be as unchecked as it is, and for good reason. Uh, another win for Trump. So those of you who think I'm overly critical of Trump, here's another good win. I always point out, it's even more powerful if I say something negative than when I say something positive. It's even more meaningful, isn't it? Uh, so uh, wonderful stuff. And of course, logical, because we're putting the mask back on in L.A. We're wearing the mask at you know Port Authority in New York. There is mask still on kids in certain parts of the country. But in uh, the, but at our, our border, you're allowed to come in through the gates. 
uh, if you're an illegal alien, even if you got the coronavirus and you will be then bussed or flown to, it seems like wherever you want to go. Um, this was what John Bender said on the show yesterday that a lot of the agents down at the border consider themselves at this point to be Uber drivers, basically there to ferry illegal aliens to our, within our country. The majority now say that Joe Biden is deliberately encouraging illegal immigration in Erasmuson poll, and they are correct. Uh, of course, he is encouraging illegal immigration. And it's not just because he will not complete the wall. It is also because he is sending a very clear signal that the bad guys at the border are the United States law enforcement. Remember the fake news cycle with all the whipping, etc.? So all that is very, uh, uh, it is a good sign in a way, but it is just, we can't get control of our border fast enough. And this is why elections matter so much. Uh, Texas National Guard Specialist Bishop Evans was found in the Rio Grande. I mentioned this story yesterday, one of the most important stories of the year. He drowned, saving two illegal aliens in the Rio Grande. If we had a sane immigration system, he would never have been in this spot. It turned out the two illegal aliens who were drowning in the Rio Grande, who he saved, were actually trying to traffic illegal drugs into the country. Uh, we found 90 pounds of fentanyl yesterday at a California checkpoint, and this is enough to kill millions of Americans. So 90 pounds seized, and just know whatever they're seizing, how much more are they getting beyond that? Uh, how much is more is getting through? And wh what is fentanyl? Something like 50 times stronger than your sort of run-of-the-mill opioids? It's killing people all over the country. And again, our media is not super interested in this because it is a confluence. It is a representative of so many of their mistakes. Fentanyl largely produced in China, sold by the cartels and smuggled in by the illegal aliens. Nothing people want you to talk about. All of these things are things that we're supposed to be uh, keeping the public from. Um, another story that I will bring up that is the Elon Musk story. I think it's important to, to, to delve into this. I think it's pretty exciting, I, I have to say. Uh, so a lot of things changed starting on Sunday night. And as you recall, uh, based on not just my personal analysis, but looking at the way the stock market reacted at the initial Elon Musk offer for Twitter was they didn't take it overly seriously. Now, again, it is one where uh, th that is the best bellwether there was when Elon Musk put out his offer to buy Twitter at $54.20 a, a, a share, which is a pot reference in it, $4.20. For marijuana culture, uh, you would think that is if the offer was taken seriously by Wall Street, the stock would have surged, but it was not. But then something happened. Musk actually went out and he went and he got all the financing. Now, at Breitbart, we'd been saying that we thought we were very confident he'd be able to get the financing if he wanted it because his shares of Tesla are so valuable and they do seem to only be going up at this point. Though many smart people have shorted Tesla, it just seems like that there were so much that he would be able to get the financing for just about anything he wants just based on that alone. And that is what he went out and did. And one of the interesting tells was he had retained Morgan Stanley, who, which is a, a, a hostile takeover expert at the very start. And that was the one indicator that John Carney and I were talking about, suggesting that he might not be totally full of crap here. And uh, even though the percentage, I think, was probably pretty low last week that this was going to happen, I think as we got in and we worked towards the weekend, Twitter probably had two things going on behind the scenes that we'll probably found out, find out later on. 
And uh, first of all, they probably went out to try to find other bids and they just couldn't find them, which probably was a surprise to people who are within Twitter because and people who are big boosters of Twitter because Twitter is beloved by the institutional left. It is where their ideas incubate, incubate, where they percolate. It's a prestige platform where left-wing influencers in particular go to congregate and to share ideas and to hone ideas and to hone their talking points. There had to have been someone who could round up enough money to, to buy it and make sure someone who is certainly not a right-winger by any means, but is more iconoclastic like an Elon Musk, uh, that he'd be able to buy it from them. But uh, Twitter is also a big headache, and it is a controversial place where there's a lot of debates that take place about how the business is run, where the right is not satisfied with the fact that it is a, a not a free speech platform, that is a platform that just doesn't just ban people like Donald Trump, but it shadow bans people. It has algorithms that are in place where you know play people like Breitbart or people who work at Breitbart where our tweets are discriminated against because of who we are and they're not forthright about it and they've been doing this for years so they lie to you and they tell you that you're getting a feed that is based on some sort of a neutral algorithm but it's not it's an algorithm that discriminates against certain viewpoints and yet the left thinks we don't they, it doesn't go far enough it thinks there's too much misinformation on the platform and misinformation of course is not actual misinformation it's information that goes against the left wing status quo so uh, people would have thought that the left would have fought to preserve this and not risk having their precious little toy twitter that get usurped by by someone else who might you know up in the apple cart here but they must not have been able to. And I do think it's the fact that it is such a controversial place and it's such a headache for anyone. Anyone who takes over Twitter is going to have a big headache. And it's got a couple things working against it overall. It really is a fraction of the power overall, I think, on Twitter that Facebook and Google have in terms of uh, um, uh, the marketplace. Facebook and Google generate infinite amount of revenue more than Twitter. And Twitter has not really figured out how to monetize I think it's part of the reason why Jack Dorsey is, is no longer there. The original, I guess, I don't know if he was the original CEO, but the one who's most famous for being associated with Twitter. Um, it was, he was just now not ever not able to make a lot of money. And we're coming up on a earnings report that I think we're going to get on Thursday for Q1. And Twitter's earnings in Q1 were terrible. And this, we don't know for sure, but I'm guessing this is what we're going to find out. And I'm guessing this is going to make their stock even less appealing. So that 5420 number, which I said in the show, is probably too low. At least Wall Street thinks it's too low because Twitter traded it much higher than that last year. Well, if they got an earnings report that came in really bad and then the share prices dropped a lot, then there would be a shareholder lawsuit on the table for not accepting the Musk bid. So there's a very good chance in a couple of days we're going to see some real garbage revenue reports from Twitter. And if that's the case, then they really could have had trouble if with shareholders if they did not accept the Musk bid and then they got the bad earnings report and then that meant that they would have to probably sell for less. So they had to get this done, it seemed like, for whatever reason, and Musk got the financing together. Now, we knew Musk could get it together, but would he actually do it or was he just going to goof around and make empty threats and comments as he often does, which gets attention for himself, which was, of course, my initial take was that was probably how it was going to go down. But again, as I mentioned briefly on the show, that Morgan Stanley thing, that was really interesting that he did retain Morgan Stanley. And that, uh, even though I, I would not have bet he was going to pull it off at the start, it made me think it wasn't entirely a joke. And it turned out that that was the data point to pay attention to, was that he was serious about uh, getting 
a uh, getting getting the team in place both with his bankers in order to to pull this off and that's what he did so now uh, here is my overall take on musk buying twitter there's a few components to it i think are worth noting and then if you want to opine at 86695 patriot uh, i'm happy to get your thoughts uh, overall this is a good thing and it's a good thing because twitter is one of the few platforms and one of the few things that's controlled by the institutional left that i actually don't think can get much worse than what it is now now uh, when jack dorsey who is no friend of the right left twitter i said this is exciting because dorsey's a guy who did a terrible job but it's probably going to get worse and that was correct and since dorsey's gone the censorship regime has gotten even more intense and we seem it still seems like every day you get another prominent person getting banned for for no good reason um, I think Tucker Carlson um, uh, and Charlie Kirk and the Babylon Bee are the latest who were just censored for almost no reason, basically saying truthful things about Rachel Levine, the trans person who has won Woman of the Year in some places. That uh, the, uh, the Ra- Rachel Levine, who is a man winning Woman of the Year, stuff like that, is a that got them kicked off the platform. So Twitter did get worse. Uh, it is. I think Facebook could get worse. I think Google could even get a little bit worse, which is not by a whole lot. You know, the Democrat Party could always get worse. Things that the left controls can still get worse. Twitter, I don't think could have. I think Twitter is about as bad as it's going to get. And so anyone coming in, even a guy who you know I don't like very much, like Elon Musk, is still uh, positive. Pretty much any new regime is positive to me. Uh, and that's a that's a good thing. And, and Musk is saying the right stuff about free speech. He's saying that he wants it to be a free speech platform, and he's saying that he wants to uh, make sure that this is the preeminent place where ideas can be shared. Now, his history, though, is where I'm very suspicious, and uh, his history is not as a free speech guy. Um, he is famously... Uh, slapped his own customers with non-disclosure agreements about one of the new features of his self-driving cars because he didn't want embarrassing dash camera footage of his self-driving cars to be caught on tape. And we just had a clip yesterday, Breitbart the other day, of a car that was driving uh, uh, autopilot with no driver that crashed into a multi-million dollar a- airplane. It was just very slowly crashing into it. It was it's really agonizing, sort of funny to watch, unless, of course, you're the owner of the airplane or maybe the car. Um, He's someone who actually asked the Chinese government to help him censor social media posts in China about Tesla car wrecks because it was hurting his business. And um, according to Bloomberg Businessweek, Tesla complained to the government over what it sees as unwarranted attacks on social media and asked Beijing to use its censorship powers to block some of the posts. And those of you who've read my book, Breaking the News, to see Bloomberg point that out is uh, uh, extra funny. Um. And remember, he and his mom, who seems kind of nutty, uh, planned this thing called Pravda, D-U-H, where he would specifically fact check journalists who criticize Tesla, which is fine. He can do that. It's kind of funny, too. But it is not a guy who's sitting around uh, with his reputation being a pro-free speech guy. He's got a, a literal plant in Xinjiang, which is the region of China that has the Uyghur concentration camp. China, of course, is his biggest uh, country to do business aside from the USA, the uh, arguably the most censorious regime on planet Earth is one that Musk is dependent on for a lot of his wealth, and not just for Tesla, for other companies as well. 
So his reputation is he's not a free speech guy. His reputation is he's a guy who will work with censorious regimes in order to make Elon Musk a lot of money and stuff. But if he is a new convert to the cause, and I have no reason to believe he is yet, but he's saying the right stuff. And if he is, that's great. And a welcome to the cause, by all means. And if even if he is doing it for the wrong reasons, even if he's doing it for personal aggrandizement, even if he is doing this to point out um, to, to try to uh, dunk on his haters. I don't care why, but if he's a free speech guy now, that's terrific. And that makes me very happy. And I hope uh, uh, he will get applauded by me. Uh, I, he has to do the damn thing though, as the expression goes. Now that he's in and he's gotten his Twitter at the epic hilarious price of 54.20, then he's gonna have to try to turn it into something that is more uh, a free speech place. I think he's going to have an opportunity to as well, uh, because even though the woke millennials who are on Twitter will want to leave, it's very addictive, so it's going to be hard for them. Um, and the woke millennials who are in the company will want to leave the company. I do think that a lot of them will be easily replaced because Musk is a huge cult following and he'll probably be able to pay people more. So he'll probably be able to just give people raises. And I think he will be able to pull in enough talent to be able to keep things going. So uh, I'm somewhat optimistic overall. I'm certainly more optimistic than I'm sure a lot of you were expecting, considering you know that I'm not Musk fan because the China stuff really rubbed me the wrong way. And my expectations for him are quite low. But I will say that they're higher than they were with Parag Agrawal as the CEO, uh, which was literally zero. And uh, my hope for Twitter becoming a place that's anything above a cesspool uh, was was zero. Now, I'll tell you what I don't like. He's gotten the endorsement of Jack Dorsey, who is the previous CEO of Twitter, who that is not a good thing. That is a that's one where if I was Musk, I would have elbowed uh, at Jack and said, hey, Jack, you can calm down here. You don't have to say anything. No need to get involved. Stay out of this one. Because uh, Jack Dorsey, of course, initiated the current censorship regime. Um, when he started with censoring Milo Yiannopoulos when he was at Breitbart. That was the first original person who was first shadow banned and then kicked off the platform. Um, so again, even though Musk's background with the China ties, et cetera, it, it, it is something that's disturbing to me. Um, the other thing is that his first move is what he wants to do is ban bots, which the shareholders of Twitter and the board have never wanted to ban. These are these robots that simulate engagement on the website, but they're fake people. Uh, this is something that people never wanted to do because it does cut off uh, a lot of users. It looks like a lot of the, your Twitter followers, if Musk pulls us off, are going to go down immeasurably. And if you're a celebrity, you're going to lose tens of millions of followers because a lot of them are fake. And that makes the platform look not as hot. And that's not as good for earnings. And that's not as good for the numbers you're going to put out to your shareholders. Well, now that it's a private company, Musk can do that without a lot of fear. But I'm wondering if that will decrease some engagement in the platform. Probably will. But the interesting thing also is that if you are an anonymous person, Musk is still going to verify you. So if you're like the libs of TikTok lady, uh, Musk is going to make a concerted effort to make sure that you're, on, you're in some sort of database where he knows exactly who you are, whether or not you want to be out there or not. Um, but this should not come as a surprise to anyone because Musk literally has a company called Neuralink where he wants to put a microchip in your brain and have it all connected to a supercomputer controlled by Elon Musk. It is an amazing thing that I'm semi-obsessed with is that a lot of people on the right who were convinced that the vaccines uh, for the coronavirus that were created thanks to Donald Trump have a microchip in them 
and literally you're being injected with a microchip. But they're not as concerned that Elon Musk is literally has a company designed to hook up your brain to a supercomputer controlled by Musk. And he's open about it. So it's kind of funny. It's an interesting point that that's where Musk is going longer term. So again, a lot of it is hype and we'll see what he's able to do. I will note one other thing that is worthwhile, I think, to point out, which is that Trump announced that he will not be going back on Twitter. And he said some kind words to Musk saying he'll improve the platform, but Trump will be on Truth Social, even though Trump has not used Truth Social yet. So Truth Social has been online for a couple months and Trump has not used it. But this is a Trump versus Musk situation, which is probably interesting for some of you who are fans of both, if you're out there. Uh, And uh, we put up a headline of Breitbart Musk versus Trump, and some of the commenters were mad at my headline. But they're literally in direct competition now. Trump is saying I'm not going on Musk's platform because I'm going to be on my own platform. That is a literally direct competition. They are working, uh, uh, perhaps maybe they have a shared goal of a more free Twitter, but uh, Trump is not participating. Trump is going to be in his own platform. Um, I will throw out one more news item uh, quickly. We had some coverage of the uh, Pennsylvania debate, Senate debate yesterday, and uh, overall, Dr. Oz got pummeled over his record. His answers were okay. He gave a really good answer on Title 42. Um, He gave a bad answer on why he joined the Turkish military. He said he joined because he loves his mom. That was very weird. Um, But overall, he was pretty slick and gave better answers than I would anticipate. But he got pretty much systematically picked apart, mostly by David McCormick, but also by the two ladies in the race. Um, as well, Barnett and Sands, who went through his record and busted him for his uh, abortion flip-flopping and it, wanting to ban uh, fracking in the past and wanting to have a, a his trans show that we played on the show on uh, this show, where he was promoting trans ideology in 2015. So uh, Oz's record got pretty much picked apart, but he did say better stuff. So those of you in the Oz camp, I will say. Uh, he gave some okay answers, but he did come off a pretty slick guy and not as his record was just brutalized by the whole group. Um, but it was an interesting one and we'll have covered for you at Breitbart.com as well if you want to check that out. So a quick plug there if you want more on that race because, you know, I'm pretty interested in it. Um, uh, and that is one we'll, we'll continue to bring highlights of that race to your attention because it is something that is front and center in my mind. <laughs> Jim in Maryland is a little more optimistic than I am about the forthcoming Elon Musk era of Twitter, but I have to say, I do hope he's right, and his perspective is, I think, a good one and one I am openly rooting for, even if I don't know if it's going to happen. Let's hear from Jim, our caller of the day. I'm wondering why uh, Trump and Musk can't co-mingle. I think there's plenty to go around. I think there's going to be a big draw for liberals to want to go on and actually have a back and forth. I think more liberals want to do that than actually want, at the end of the day, see the censorship and stuff that's been going on the last couple of years. So, Jim, what do you think, where do you think this this goes from here then? Well, let me give you an example. I get on Facebook sometimes, and there's a couple of websites that are strictly, obviously, ultra-liberal. 
and I'll throw in my two cents and then at the end of it say, and like the great Donald Trump once said, and that's all it takes. Next thing I know, within an hour, I got 100 people coming at me, and I can respond to each one of them, reply to them separately. And it's just like, it's, it just ignites a storm, and it doesn't end until I end it. Oh, yeah, that's true. I mean, it's a, there are ways to trigger people into an endless debate. If you want to talk Trump with anyone left to center in this country, they're just not going to. Well, most of them are not going to get it. A couple of them will. I've got one left center friend who gets he understands Trump. He's, he wouldn't vote for him, but he understands why people like him. But, yeah, the, the, there is that that goes on. And I obviously Twitter is a much more interesting place when Trump's on it. And so I'm wondering if Musk is going to try to recruit Trump to come back on. And if Trump will be susceptible to that, because he might be, it, it uh, but be, it would be beneficial. Yeah, it'd be very beneficial. For, as I've said, uh, Trump was by far the best thing on Twitter. Actually, the, the next best thing on Twitter is probably Musk. Musk is really good at Twitter. They're, they're the two best people at Twitter in terms of using the platform to be interesting and to you know start conversations. Um, I think that's I think that's we need totally, to plan a beer yeah. summit with them, Alex. Yeah, I, I don't I don't know what, what Musk order would be. I, I Musk would have the pot and Trump would have water. I think that's what would maybe a Diet Coke. That, that, that would not be a particularly interesting drink order. I, I'm, I'm guessing Musk is not a, one to imbibe too often. He did. He I think he had some Love whiskey share, some my at some point. Thanks, Jim. It's compelling. Look, it's compelling. This is fun, guys. And this is where we don't need to, I think, get overly. Uh, it'd be overly dramatic about this because we don't know where it's going to go, but we do know it's going to go to a much more interesting place. And I say this as someone who does not like Musk, but I hate the current regime at Twitter so much that anything that mixes it up, let's see it. Let's see what happens. And if Musk turns into the guy that Musk is saying he is on uh, social media right now and not the guy that we know he is based off of his deals with the U.S. and Chinese government, then that would be great. And if he's not, if he's the same guy that cuts all these deals with Beijing, then uh, we're going to dunk on him for that if he doesn't change his ways. I got American parts. I got American faith. In America's heart. Thanks so much to producers Haley and Greg Eben and Robert Marlowe, who helps me pick topics, and to all of you who tell 10,000 friends and family members about everything we do at Breitbart.com, whatever is your favorite, be it the podcast or the live show or the headlines or the social media, whatever it is, if you like it, please share it. That's all we ask, and it means a lot. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Mm-hmm.